Hello and welcome to the High Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well-being, to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash the high podcast. And you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's show, I have the privilege of speaking with Jennifer Morgan, the International Executive Director of Greenpeace International. Jennifer is the former Global Director of the Climate Programme at the World Resources Institute, the Global Climate Change Director at Third Generation Environmentalism, and she also led the Global Climate Change Programme of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, the WWF. She has published widely on international climate policy issues, and Jennifer recently addressed the 2020 World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, calling upon global leaders to recognise this moment as we recover from the impacts of the pandemic as an unmissable chance to put people and planet first. In our conversation, we explore what actions, large and small, we can take to come together and create a future we want to inhabit. We look at how the interpersonal values of compassion, courage, cooperation and kindness can be used as a basis upon which to redesign the world in which we live. And we consider the choice we have of using well-being as the primary lens through which we make our decisions, both now and as we emerge into the next chapter. This conversation was so rich and fascinating for me, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me in conversation. I'm really excited to be speaking with you today. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I'm going to start with the big question that I've been asking everyone, which is, from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Oh, wow. I think I think there's all kinds of things happening and some we're aware of and some we have no idea of. I think I think there's a, a deep sense of uncertainty that people are trying to cope with. Um, and that can either bring anxiety in some and perhaps liberation in others. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a moment where people are, are just in a way pushed into a, into a, out of their comfort zones. Mm. Uh, and I think everybody, I've just learning as I go, you know, people respond so differently and you just can't judge that right Mm. now. (laughs) Mm. And I think also there's so many different 
stages and fluctuations in our response to this as well, that it's, um, it's a very movable thing. Well, absolutely. It changes day by day, I think. And some days I know I feel this incredible hopefulness <laughs> uh, and other days I feel despair and then there's all kinds of things in between. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I think, well, the people listening to this podcast will know that um, I have a keen interest in what's going on in the world in terms of our interaction with not only one another in tech but also with the natural living environment and I think what's extraordinary about this moment is that it's highlighted how possible it is to albeit unwillingly perhaps hit the pause button on global human activity and with CO2 and nitrogen dioxide and smog levels crashing around some of the most polluted places in the world it seems to me like a rare and precious opportunity amidst the suffering to make the most of these accidental gains and redesign how we live, which is something that I know you have a huge amount of insight and expertise in. And I want to ask a little bit about this beautiful letter that you wrote recently, describing how the consequences of the pandemic will be defined by our choices and that these choices should be based upon values. And I'd like to ask, what values do you hold dear for building our way out of this pandemic together? Well, I think I particularly have been holding the values of compassion, Mm. courage, cooperation, and I'm feeling a lot about kindness right now. Mm. I just think that um, each of those are things that we hope that people are bringing to their exchanges with us directly. But also, I just imagine if if we in the way that the world is dealing with the, the, the COVID crisis, and then if we were to take that, we, we ha- you know, and then apply it and continue that to create a new normal, just how much better it would be. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I see it in very little ways. I, you know, I think we're all experiencing the, the neighbor who's going shopping for the the elderly person or the sign posts, you know, offering help, et cetera. Mm. I, I see it, you know, but I, I think also how the interconnectivity and the compassion for what's happening in other places. Um, even I'm very lucky I'm home working, you know, mm. um, I have a park around the corner, but I am very aware of what's happening around the world. And I, I hope that this can help us connect more to those values. Mm. And I wonder in in what ways, even if they're just really small ways, um, you might suggest that people connect with these. Because I think sometimes, you know, as we mentioned, it can be really easy to get lost in all these feelings, whether it's anxiety or paralysis is one that I've definitely heard come up a few times, or this desire to be extremely proactive. And what are some things that people could do to maybe connect with these values of compassion, cooperation, courage, and kindness? I think um, on, a, on a daily level, in a way on the cooperation side of things, I just think about my own apartment house and um, cooperating with neighbors to make sure that those that are vulnerable in the, in the apartment house are being well taken care of. So like mm. creating platforms, <laughs> uh, whether it be a, a sign-up board on the, you know, when you come into the apartment building or whether it be electronic, I think, to make sure, but cooperating in a way and and covering for each other when others can't, I think is mm. one key thing. I think 
the level of compassion that we need to have for parents who are working at home doing Zoom meetings with little kids. (laughs) I mean, I just, I have, we have many colleagues at Greenpeace who are in that situation right now. And I think like taking that deep breath when a kid comes into the picture and you're like, no, I'm not going to be angry. I'm going to be compassionate because I can't imagine that 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 person has to work that way. Um, And I think, you know, the courage one, I think is going to be a key one moving forward as well, because I think there's something about the courage of saying, you know, I, um, I don't want to go back to the way it was Mm -hmm. like even asking the question, because there's so much pressure or in society to say, okay, we've got to go back to the way it went back to normal, but actually having the courage to say to your friend or, you know, even to your mayor or whoever it might be, no, I, I, there, there's things I don't want to go back to. I, I want to keep this clean air. Can we have a car free zone in my neighborhood? Um, and work, you know, to make that happen. So I think all of those little pieces are actually quite large when Mm. you start talking about society and how we're living with each other. It's interesting about the clean air thing in, um, so I I live in Barcelona and I live on a street which has pretty much um, non-stop traffic in normal days. And it's actually one of the most polluted areas of Barcelona, even though it's a very beautiful part and there's trees everywhere just because of the traffic. And it's been so nice in the last seven weeks to be able to just sleep with the windows open and not hear Mm. a single (laughs) sound apart from birds and bats until goodness knows what time. (laughs) And I've noticed in the last few days since we've gone into de-escalation phase zero, which is when people can start um, going out a little more, the the traffic is coming back and I can really, really notice the pollution. Hmm. And um, and it's this sense of concern that I have. One on the one hand thinking, okay, well, there's, there's, this, there's this felt sense of possibility of, okay, now I've had a physical, visceral sense of what clean air is like, what quiet roads are like, what community spirit is like. I know that it's within our grasp. On the other hand, as you say, kind of this this pull back to this homeostasis of the previous normal is so strong and people want to resume um, the predictable as quickly as possible that I wonder how we can go about dealing with um, creating this change what are some of the ways that you would suggest people engage in action either in terms of you know activism or legislation etc I think the first thing is to um hold on to that experience of what that better world is like, hmm. what it's and and recognize it. So the fact that you recognize this is this is better. This is <laughs> this is what I want to have. And then to realize that you actually need to probably fight for it. Um not just appreciate it, but also f- fight for it. And I think um it links into in a way a a, a realization and then kind of a hopefully get have people have some agency to create that well-being Mm -hmm. to actually have well-being be the primary lens for how you make your decisions and working in communities and cities to do that um so i think it could be you know on the activist side i think working together with people um in this case on your street or to um, say, hey, would you be willing to get together and weigh in with the mayor or the local official to see if we can 
turn this street either into a car-free zone or something that has less traffic on it and and um and get moving to make that happen or even to dream even bigger to say you know can you imagine if we actually in Barcelona had a mobility plan that was about um well achieving clean air and health so mm. what what if we got people out of their cars and created more bike lanes mm. would it be like if the cars actually were powered by renewable energy electricity and were silent um and you know and so can we then say to the government you know we actually want to have that kind of a experience of, of mobility and therefore they need to be fighting to make sure that the car companies <laughs> it's all linked together you know mm. the, the car companies that are out there are transitioning to a different kind of engine right to mm. an electric vehicle um so i think that it can happen on in my view right now it's more about being active wherever you want to and also to help and work with people to see those linkages um because you can bet your bottom dollar that the companies that are trying desperately not only to go back to the old normal to go back before the uh, you know what was happening at the beginning of the year to to get either you know bailouts mm. or try and reset things while people are in maybe a different set of mind that they're in there mm. so it's really important actually that people become active as well on however they can. It's interesting you mentioned about mayors. I was reading um, recently about the C40, a network of mm. the world's mega cities seeking to take bold climate action to lead out of this uh, pandemic towards sort of a more healthy and sustainable future. And what's interesting is that these are mayors of the many of the world's leading cities basically warning that we can't go back to business as usual. And I'm really excited by that, this, this sense of possibility that there are people who are in pivotal roles making the changes that they need to and quite radical changes actually making the most of the situation right now to be able to make sure that when we come out people adjust not only um behaviorally which I think is going to be something that's going to be interesting to watch but also in terms of infrastructure so you know you mentioned the bike lanes I know that in Barcelona there's been some really interesting movement on that but I wonder do you think that there is a wider sense of governments waking up to the responsibilities that they now have because at the beginning of May I think it was environment ministers from 30 countries met in this two-day online conference for the Petersburg climate dialogue what thoughts do you have on how seriously heads of states are now taking this opportunity to to really make radical change I think it's starting so I I think that um of course leaders needed to to focus on and listen to science which i think is just <laughs> another one of the key lessons out of this whole thing but you know to work on um reducing the you know the 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 risks to the virus but what i think has now started to happen in that petersburg dialogue was really very important and it it was great that the german government went forward and hosted it again and that the chancellor came and spoke is to connect the dots, mm. to say the climate crisis hasn't gone away. It's actually still happening. And what we do in particularly the economic response to the COVID crisis is going to be a make or break thing on whether we have a chance to avoid just cataclysmic changes. Because mm -hmm. if, 
if the if the response is about a pumping money into fossil fuel industries and into kind of industries that are you know part, a big part of the problem, we're looking at increase of temperature that are just you know associated with just terrible impacts, unimaginable things. But you know, and this is what Chancellor Merkel said: we need if we think these things together, right? Then you have. Um, funds going into infrastructure investments that you mentioned or going into creating jobs, which I think it's really important that there's a, a green and social kind of a transformation that happens, that we're looking at what are the short-term jobs that can come forward on solar, on roofs, on mm. insulation and houses. I mean, there are very labor-intensive jobs that can come from that, that we think about that together. I think those were good words from that conference and from the chancellor. I think the key really now is um, the implementation. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, actually, um, Greenpeace France today, just as a, a little story, because I think this is one that's quite uh, interesting. They, they uh, the government did take a decision to put bailout money, not with no criteria, right, on environment. And so the proposal actually they put forward was to, get a new law that would require binding objectives for the biggest companies, biggest carbon polluting companies. And then if those companies don't meet those targets, then they wouldn't be allowed to distribute dividends to their shareholders. Oh, wow. That's very uh, strategic. (laughs) Yeah. And it connects this money to the polluters. Yeah. Right. That's happening right now. And on these dividends, that's even a debate, Mm. you know, that. um, So I think there is this moment of radical change, and I uh, that's there. I think the debate's starting, um, but we really need people to be pushing in because otherwise, it it yeah it it will be challenging for sure. In terms of what a more resilient system might look like, I always like delving into this question because people bring different perspectives to this. What would you like to see people build together? What would be in your sort of wildest dreams of what that could be? Oh, I would, you know, I would start with, you know, making sure that no one's left with basic needs unfilled. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. housing, that's, um, well, if you were going the full way, then it should be housing that is resilient to climate impacts, right? Like, yeah. and that is also efficient and can be actually positive energy housing that's kind of being built, but but at least there is housing that's there looking at mobility systems that um, get people around. I mean, you think about, um, this is, I think, a key response looking forward. Are people going to be comfortable going into subways anymore? Well, we need to be thinking Mm. about that and building mobility systems with more subway cars, more space, and also out into the rural areas, because right now that's, you know, one of the gaps that's there. Healthcare for everyone. Mm. I mean, I just think... This crisis has shown that's that's such a huge problem, especially in the poor developing countries. If you think about that in relation to a, a climate extreme event, again, you know, um, having those facilities there, food security uh, for a resilient system, really looking much more about relocalization um, that's there. And, you know, obviously the, the healthy environment of a, of a resilient system that's there. So it's really trying to think of people and their needs and their well-being and planetary well-being um, together. What do you think about 
how long the impact I and mean, this is sort of a pie in the sky I mean we're really just um, playing with the ideas here at this point but with so many people traveling less and consuming less and also rediscovering in many instances what their priorities are when when faced with lockdown with faced with limited possibilities and also I want to say uh, some some way or another faced with their own mortality in a much more present way what do you think will come out of this in terms of potentially longer lasting changes in how we relate to the world and to what we want do you think people's priorities will shift possibly in the longer term I I think it's hard to say if I'm honest about it. I mm. I think that there is the chance that there could be some major mindset shifts mm. and major even cultural changes. So, you know, if you think about um right now people just wanting to hug each other, hug their yeah. friends <laughs> and meet in a park, right? Can we hold on to that as one of our key values and one of our key things that we want to do instead of going and going shopping and buying cheap stuff, right? Mm. Or um, that that's as important as getting on a plane and going somewhere in a short, you know, for a short weekend. I do feel that there's things happening, and and I've heard this from our office in China and in um, and in South Korea. The understanding of our much deeper connection and interrelationship with nature. Hmm. Um, and I think it happens on a number of different ways. I think one is just this realization and understanding from the science that the whole COVID crisis is linked with hmm. deforestation, wildlife trade, globalization, right? All of those things together, you know, um, I think is entering into the consciousness. But also, I think, you know, this much deeper appreciation of going outside and seeing nature um, and how and watching nature come to us more because, you know, I think many people are having that experience. So that's one of the ones that I feel like there's a real chance to hold on to that. And the other ones I think we're going to have to also have a, like a conscious effort on um, to, to think about like, okay, what are these choices and what are the implications of my choices? Not only for me, but for other people. And that's that's one of the key ones that I just so deeply hope and want to work with others on is this interrelation, this interconnection mm. of how what I do has such an impact on somebody else of life and death. Well, it's not that different on climate change. Mm. Um, and so that's one I really want to hope that we can hold on to and work work on. I wonder from maybe either or both a personal or a business perspective, if there are instances or stories that you've seen of people radically reassess their values and, and take a, a really distinct new direction in terms of how their, their life is unfolding. Hmm. Well, I actually do have a personal story of, um, <laughs> of my, uh, my niece who hmm. was scheduled to, she got married like the weekend before the whole thing, everything shut down. Oh, wow. She was scheduled to move with her new partner, her husband to Singapore, couldn't go. And, um, instead was living with his parents Oh wow! and just made the radical shift to move and be with her sister in Arizona, right? They've driven to Arizona. Their stuff is in Singapore. 
you know, radical disruption in her (laughs) life. And she really decided that the most important thing was for them to be with with her sister. Mm -hmm. And so they're living in Arizona. And I just think that's like a prioritization (laughs) of uh, love Mm -hmm. and family and togetherness um, that I... I think is much more prevalent, but I, I, that's my most current example on that. I think, I <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have conversations in Greenpeace about like, I mean, there's going to be radical changes in how we do meetings mm-hmm. and um, when we do meetings and, you know, how our offices work mm-hmm. in the future. We're having all those conversations now. And I, I think it's just this, that's a wonderful thing to be, taking that chance to step back and look anew um, at how we work. Seems to be a lot of changes that are suddenly tipping into um, into more public awareness. I mean, I think one of the things I was particularly encouraged by was the findings on women in leadership. It was a very uh, clickable headline, but there was talk about how some of the best responses in the world have been by countries who are led by women, such as Angela Merkel or Jacinda Ardern. And I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, women as leaders and being better represented in science, in positions of power, also with this sense that, at least with much of the research that I've read, if you look at developing countries where there is a greater need for basic family planning and micro-investments in the economy. It's often the women who, when given the opportunities, will rise an entire community up. I wonder what your thoughts are about that on like a global level. I think it's, uh, well, I think it's super interesting. And it's something that I have felt my whole life of working on a complex issue where cooperation and communication is super important and watching women in all different functions thrive um, and and lead. I think we never would have gotten the Paris Agreement if we if there hadn't been so many women in different places working together where there was no ego. Mm. Uh, no ego. There are women with ego, of course. So, but you know, no less <laughs> ego. But in, in my my experience, there was like no ego. It was about getting things done, and it was about bringing people together and cooperation and a lot of courage, I think, as well. I think about, I I think a lot about the um, young climate strikers, right? And Mm. where uh, it's been a tremendous experience to work with them. And, you know, it's not only Greta, but it's Vanessa Nakade from Africa. And the the thing is, it's not easy and you have to stay on it because Mm. she was um, at Davos and there was a photo that was done of the climate strikers who were at Davos and she got cut out of a photo by AP. What? Yeah. Why? Uh, I think their answer was, I don't, I don't even remember. It was like that they were just cropping the photo. And so she and Greta did a press conference actually with climate strikers from around Africa to say, to take it back and turn it into her, you know, her space and her story. And it, mm-hmm. it's great to see this leadership. And I think it's actually essential. Um, I'm a great believer in, in female leadership or feminist leadership, but it's, we have to keep at it and work for it. And Vanessa's story to me was shocking. Mm-hmm. You know, I think also, to be a woman leader in that level of, uh, you know, in Chancellor Merkel, or you have to be really good. Mm. So you have exceptional people there. Mm. 
It is interesting, it makes me think about the wider issue of visibility and narratives and what roles you shine a light on and which roles you you manage to just sweep to the side. So for instance, this whole conversation around key workers and even this new vernacular to, to talk about people who are really on the front line, um, that there is still this issue of visibility, of acknowledging that our system only works because of the people who are often uh, behind the scenes making sure that it, it continues. So whether that's the women that have been airbrushed out of history in whatever phase or stage to the people who are actually doing the jobs that most of us wouldn't want to do because they're dangerous in this particular instance. Do you think that there is a role for creating kind of a new cultural narrative around these people who have previously been less visible, something that's a bit more enriched as opposed to just talking about key workers, etc.? Oh, totally. I mean, I think... I think that there's, um, it's it's like an awakening, a, a pulling back the veil, however you want to talk about it, of how mm. the world works, like you're saying, and that it doesn't work. It doesn't function if uh, actually in life and death instances, if you don't have these individuals who are out there and essential for it. And it's not about the hedge fund managers that are <laughs> essential. Um, and I think it gets into also you know, what we're going to take and value moving forward in our whole economic system. Um, I hope it can inform that discussion because, you know, a focus on short-term profit and Mm. short-term growth and an economic model that just puts that pretty much above everything else devalues individuals who are nurses and teachers and people who are working in grocery stores and bus drivers it i think the opportunity to kind of turn that on its head and say you know let's um value that more in our society so that we have well-being and all, all of that i i hope can also help shift not only the perception but also the reality of what people are experiencing mm-hmm. and but again i think that will need to be a deliberate thing that we bring into the discussions because i think that uh, and that it carries on, that it doesn't kind of get, okay, we've applauded and now it's over. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where my concern lies is that, you know, it's 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 sustainable for a while, but how much change and what kind of change and how long does the change have to be, uh, you know, what actually needs to happen for behaviours to find a new baseline, for a new pattern to emerge, for culture to deeply shift. And, you know, we know it's possible when you look at points in life where there have been these moments of, great pivoting so for instance uh, when women got the vote or when apartheids have fallen or when wars have been um, labeled as finished that great change can come after these deeply transformative uh, chapters of time in which a huge amount of suffering has had to be overcome in this sense we're not having to fight a visible enemy and i think there's there's something qualitatively that's different about that when it's all of humanity against this microscopic thing which isn't quite alive I mean it kind of propagates but do you think the nature of this pandemic as opposed to other crises that we faced in the past yields itself to lasting change my hope is that yes it would (laughs) I hope so too I think it I think it can but I think it I think we have to be deliberate about it yeah okay I think if you look at culture change you've you know it, it oftentimes doesn't 
It does take time, but it also often time comes when there are different angles coming in at it. So, for example, if you look at gay marriage in the United States, mm-hmm. right, it, it was a mixture of, you know, litigation. It was human to human contact. It was Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, years of, of lobbying work that all, if you think about it, was quite a short time frame, uh, you know, to... It didn't seem short for people who were in the middle of it, right? But moving the the culture change that happened there. And I think in this instance as well, it will it will need that kind of the, the stories that continue because I think stories are so important, but it will also need organizing. It will need, if we want to shift these things to move into a better space, we have to create that world together. And so, and we have to be ready to go and fight, you know, for... The nurses, um, you know, Greenpeace is entering into new areas that we've never entered into before because it's about getting the values and the world that we need to be created, created. So whether it be debt cancellation for developing countries or, you know, looking at universal basic income for people, it's, but I guess that's my experience is culture change happens because a lot of people participate and help that move and then the shifts occur and sometimes it's radical and sometimes it's not but i i think if we want that change to happen we we have to help make that world and and also create help create the connections you know between me as an individual what can i do you know i'm helpless no actually you can do a lot (laughs) uh, at this moment because there's so many open doors and windows that leaders are now having to go through and make decisions about In terms of showing up to um, make a noise and help kind of shape the ways that governments, whether on a global level or on a country-based level or even on a local level, the way that they make change, what are your preferred ways of creating these interventions? Because I think one of the things that I was very enlivened and encouraged by was the exile rebellions that were happening towards the end of Mm. last year and how, in terms of speaking to your point about culture change, in the UK at least, it suddenly highlighted what I thought was not possible in London, which was people coming together in community without a commercial basis for exchange in large groups for sustained amount of time talking with each other as strangers. And I thought that was just, if you'd have said to me, this is going to happen in London on this date, I would have thought you're joking. Mm. But um, but it does. And so there's a hunger there. So what what kind of actions would you encourage people to engage in potentially um, to make these changes from these various different angles that, that you've suggested? Well, I think that there's something for everyone. So, you know, you can you can start with just having, it does, sounds just, but sometimes <laughs> it requires a lot of courage, a conversation, you know, with, um, with your neighbor, with your family uh, about, you know, on the climate change instance, you know, we've got 10 years, we need to fundamentally radically change and we're in this moment. So, Let's get together. Mm. It can so I think conversation is actually a quite a huge thing. I think, I think it can then move into getting engaged in the political space, um, which we need. You know, I always like to say, yes, it matters what you do in your daily life on what you buy and how you, how you act. But getting engaged politically, how you vote, is equally, if not more, important mm. because there's such big, big interests that are trying to keep the world moving in a in an unsustainable place. So I think um, 
you know, organ doing the basic bread and butter organizing of getting signups to get create your car free zone or or engaging with your federal government. I think then if you, you know, um, if you're up for something that's a bit more in the civil disobedience and bearing witness mm. side of things, I think that there's um, tremendous. I mean, um, XR the the is is doing a lot of that. Greenpeace mm-hmm. um, also um, has brought together people and stopped uh, in in France last year. We uh, there was an occupation with other. We worked with other organizations to actually, you know, uh, main plots uh, square in in Paris to stop people from going into oil companies and the federal government and banks that were funding fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. You can participate in that. Um, and I think, um, and then online right now, there's there's a lot that's happening. I participated on Sunday in a in an online demonstration oh, wow. in Switzerland, <laughs> um, and they, you know, they had a person who was out at the square in front of the parliament who was gather, gathering the petition. They had singers that were there. They had, you know, and so you know, I think that's uh, that's totally possible as well. Um, mm-hmm. So. There's lots of different ways of of getting engaged. Um, people need to start from their own where they're at and their comfort zone, and then the sky's the limit. That's really wonderful. And I'm also wondering in terms of how Greenpeace's schedule looks now, with you know everyone being locked down. What are your hopes about how Greenpeace will engage in these conversations in the months to come, given all the uncertainty? Well, my hope is that you know we will remain in and increase our conversations with of course the people who are Greenpeace supporters now but also new people uh, you know reaching out uh, that's how I'm spending a lot of my days is talking to allies in different organizations and talking to people through online communications who are worried about this and talking to them about it I think mm-hmm. that's one way that I think is is one of my hopes the, the other is that we're finding new ways of bringing the voices of people into the into the process yesterday there was was it this morning there was a big projection on the Houses of Parliament in the UK mm-hmm. you know talking about a green future and not billing out polluters yes. and mm-hmm. you know I think any way that we can be keeping that presence of what people are looking for is what what we're looking for we've had holograms um <laughs> in streets um you know showing the, the the strikers in warsaw um had some in front of the uu parliament so i think the creativity my hope is that the you know greenpeace is full of amazing creative mm. um courageous people it's one of the most exciting things about being in greenpeace <laughs> And so I'm quite curious and excited about what's going to be coming because they're all thinking about how to do this. It's fascinating to me that um, and there has always been collaboration in various different ways between groups with common interests and values and shared visions. But it's really exciting to me the the willingness with which kind of I see it almost as like as nodes on this ecosystem of shared values of groups coming together and wanting to create a larger movement and this desire to actually find ways to work together and to take specific roles on for one another so for instance one of the things I really loved and it's a small thing but it really it makes me smile and it's something that I've supported this um, project in the UK to protect wildlife verges, which is on the side of roads, which is something that usually you just completely ignore. And yet they've been really successful, this little project in getting people to petition their local governments to reduce the rate of cutting of wild verges by the council 
in order to make these places a safe haven for insects and for pollinators. And so little things like that, from the very small, very local, to things that Greenpeace does, the actions that you guys take, all the way to things that are happening in the Amazon basin. Mm. Do you think that there is now a sense of, and I know that we're sort of seeing this in terms of how all our systems are suddenly very clearly interconnected we've come to this very physical realization of it but do you think there is a a general sense of willingness and desire to collaborate in order to get ourselves out of this do you think we're reaching kind of a a tipping point maybe i i do i think um i've seen it as well more than ever um it's something that i i believe deeply in of the need for radical collaboration to work together Mm -hmm. to to address and to find solutions and address the, the problems of the world, whether it be inequality or whether it be climate change or whether it be solving the pandemic. And I feel that there is a, a, a greater readiness to go through what it means to do that because <laughs> mm. it takes time. It takes conversations. It takes, you know, putting your kind of your organizational hat off for a minute and thinking more broadly um, but I think there's this understanding of how connected um, the different, call them causes or call, call them drives of what we need to change are. And I think there's also this moment of this openness where if we work together and understanding that if we work together across health, environment, you know, mm. um, education, you can think about obviously, you know, that we can challenge the the system that's created these problems. And that's pretty cool. And it's gonna take time. It's, you know, we're gonna have to stay at it and do the immediate things that need to happen, but then work together and and to create a public discussion about it, which is what why I talk about conversation is so important to make things that were for, before they were unimaginable. Well, all of a sudden we're talking about, well, the Financial Times is questioning neoliberalism. <laughs> what it's so surreal isn't it what so let's go you know so yeah i think it's there i think i think we are and i think we have to stay with it and go through the trend i hate to use the word transaction cost but you know the more people you get in the in the ecosystem you have to figure out how you work together but it's worth it I have a slightly different question now, and it's just mostly out of curiosity, but because you are a very passionate and eloquent spokesperson for Greenpeace, but also for the values that Greenpeace expresses and that are shared with many people around the world, in all of the questions that you get asked and in the interviews that you partake in, what kind of question do you wish people would ask you that they generally don't? Is there something that you wish someone Mm. would just say, right, I've got this one for you, and it never comes up in conversation? Oh, gosh, what a great question. Um, I think it would be, I don't get this much anymore, just kind of, why do I believe that we can still change the world? Um, Because I do. Um, Mm. And I think sometimes there's a sense of you want to be this stubborn optimist, you know, but Mm. I think I don't get that question all that often anymore. So why do you? <laughs> uh, I guess I believe in um, be- because I've seen I've seen it happen on many different levels. I've seen change occur when people engage from like the local community in Poland that's fighting against the coal mine to the um, you know the well obviously the mega fights of something like an apartheid and so those kernels of the magic that happens when people collaborate and 
the courage that they have to take on big players. I just, um, I've seen it and I, um, and so it, it is an energizer for me. And I think it's one of the key things to, to kind of slap back the cynicism um, that can easily come in to question that. Mm. I feel very lucky that I've experienced that in my life. I love that. That's a beautiful question and a very powerful answer. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering, with this current situation, has it shone a light on things that you're grateful for now that you weren't so necessarily aware of before we went down into lockdown? Oh, very much so. I had a a birthday a couple of weeks ago and, Mm, you know, it was a very simple birthday. (laughs) Thank you. It was a, it was a, you know, my partner and I, we went on a bike ride. Um, We can go on bike rides. I'm in Germany. Um, And I think just that being outside, being in, well, with clean air, obviously with Mm. person I love, I think um, I, and getting, I got messages virtual messages from more people than I've ever gotten before. I was so touched oh. by it. I felt more loved. Um, and it, in a very uneventful day, in a way, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there was no big party or any of that. And it just showed me that it really is about that, that human connection and that, that love for the things that we cherish. That's the most important thing. And uh, I hope we can all hold on to that. Mm. And is there something that um, that maybe before this you felt you couldn't live without, but actually you've come to realize you can you can let go of? Oh, oh yeah. I think <laughs> um, <laughs> there's you you know I think um, I definitely can let go of uh, oh needing to go and get the new pair of whatever you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think uh, that's that's definitely there, and I I realize how deeply programmed I am <laughs> on that stuff, <laughs> um, and but that I can I can release that. I think the the worry that I have is you know my my father lives far away in Chicago, and um, I I think I've I'm always careful of when I fly, you know where how do I do that, and I I think I will be even more conscious about when I go, how I do that, how much time I spend, just making that trip really worth it for all the risks mm. <laughs> uh, that come with it. And well, I I don't fly for weekends anymore. I always take the train wherever I can, but that's, that's one that, you know, will stay with me. Mm. I like that. The fact that we're on mainland Europe means that it's, it's a bit, well, actually from the UK, you can take the Eurostar, but um, yeah, mm. it makes it a little easier. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I wonder, because, you know, I like to focus on the actions we can take and the the questions we can ask Mm. ourselves to help orient ourselves around the deeper questions. But I'm also curious, maybe how fear shows up for you right now. I have, um, you know, there are mornings when I wake up with just a tightness in my chest. Mm. I have a, I definitely have a deep fear that the decisions well, there's two pieces of this. One is that the decisions that are going to be made in the next couple of weeks and months about these so-called recovery or packages are going to set us on a pathway of, you know, four or five degrees Celsius. And Oof. we're not going to have this much money going in anywhere, anytime soon. Mm. And that petrifies me because I, I feel like 
you know, if you look at the debate at the beginning of the year, you had, you know, divestment coming from coal companies, you know, the oil companies feeling kind of on the run and attacked because there were there was investors pulling out and youth were on the streets and you know people were questioning all of that and my my deep fear is that we'll lose that momentum and that will that that will lose that battle mm. and i think the other fear is just that um i don't feel this as much right now actually but you know is that the those that are using this crisis to create greater polarization in the world and in society are going to you know are going to prevail but i mm. i'm feeling more love than hate right now around the world mm. so um i hope <laughs> uh that's less i'm more petrified about locking in high carbon uh, mm. and fossil fuels i'm thinking about resources that might be helpful that you could maybe point listeners towards if they also share that fear that that would help them to understand better what's happening and, and ways to intervene. Are there specific resources that you that you found valuable? Yeah, there's, I think, you know, for information on this type of thing, there's like, there's this thing called the Carbon Brief, which is a great newsletter that comes out that has all kinds of information in there. Also about some of these financial mm-hmm. institution I- issues. There's an effort actually right now um, in, uh, it's mostly in the U.S., but it's if you if you do kind of follow the money, if you Google that, I forget the name of the website, but it's uh, tracking the the funding that's going into uh, fossil fuel interests mm. and identifying when decisions are being made. I think that's quite a useful um, resource mm. right now. Um, you know, there's resources up um, on the Greenpeace site that aren't just about acting in Greenpeace's name, but also like the basics of how you get a petition going, how you do, you know, activism. And I think that's really important. There's something called the Mobilization Lab. That's a great outfit of activists who um, are giving, you know, practical um, advice on how to get things going. Oh, that's brilliant. Okay, great. I'm going to check out those resources and I will link to them in the show notes. Oh, great. (laughs) So thank you. That's really, that's encouraged me as well. (laughs) So um, I realised that we're coming a little close to time and I'd like to sort of end by asking you what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment in time I think I would ask people to dwell with the question of how they can be courageous (laughs) and go a bit beyond their comfort zones to make the world the better place that we need, wherever that is that they care about. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at Natalina High. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also, if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping on the link. Thank you again for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>